And so greetings from our church family to yours. It's been wonderful to be here this week at District Conference, actually to be able to be here a few days before, to be able to visit with leaders, and I know some of the people that are here, and it's been just a wonderful opportunity for us. And we too were thrilled about just the the passion that was being um, lived out at District Conference as people were sharing about what God has been doing, and there's a great excitement for what God is going to do. And so we're thrilled to be able to be a part of that. So today, we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to talk about the church. Um, I think it's something that we should be thinking about. Who are we? What are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? And so we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to do that by looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And this idea of the ecclesia, the called out ones. It's this beautiful opportunity for us to think about the church. And this was a church that was living in a predominantly Gentile world. It was a strategic location, but they were experiencing all kinds of pressure. So in many ways, they would be living out their lives in a way that is similar to us. And so I wanted us to be able to think on this. So Paul's words to these believers, I think, will serve as a rich guide for how the gospel impacts people and then impacts others through those that have already experienced his grace. So let's just, I'm going to read the first 10 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You can follow along either in your scriptures or on a device. And let's read the word of God together. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have to gather, to worship, And now, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would just draw us to yourself. So we pray that you would be lifted up and magnified as we spend this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 4 is interesting. I think it asks a question for me. He says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Okay, well, that's an interesting statement. How did Paul and his friends know that these believers were loved by God? that they'd been chosen, had become these called out ones, these ones who are part of the ecclesia. Well, 
I want you to park that question. We're going to come back to that one in a few minutes. But before, he provides evidence for his confidence in their inclusion in the family of God. He reminds them, and I think us, of how the message was delivered. Because in verse 5, he says this, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. And that verse is very interesting to me because here Paul describes the full spectrum of how the gospel message, the good news, has, was proclaimed to the Thessalonians. It's this great and wonderful model, I think, not only declaring what had happened, but reminding us of how we too should be proclaiming the gospel. First, it was based on the word. The word was central, but also with power and deep conviction. They were sure of the message, and that led to a boldness. It was rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk to people about the good news, we need to be focused on the word. There needs to be power and conviction. It needs to be rooted in the Holy Spirit. I think this is really an interesting statement from the Luzon Covenant that was made back by, um, in 1974. It says this, Without his witness, our witness is futile. We depend on the Holy Spirit, don't we? We need the Holy Spirit to be involved in the declaration of the good news. But then he says something else. He says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. So there's this notion of not just the word and power and conviction and being rooted in the Holy Spirit. There's also them living out the fruit of that. Their living is an example of what that's supposed to look like. And that example becomes a powerful part of that declaration. It's a wonderful description of the necessary ingredients in communicating the gospel. If done biblically and effectively, it will always include these elements. The word will be proclaimed with passion and power, all under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the example of the messenger, you and I, will be consistent with the message that we're bringing, and this results in a tremendous sense of authenticity. Our walk and our talk match. That's a powerful thing because there's so many people today that make a disconnect between those two things. They talk about Jesus, they talk about the gospel, they talk about his power, but you don't see it in their lives. And so that authenticity is necessary. And so this was true the apostles. They're declaring this. They had declared this, this word, power, deep conviction, anointing, authenticity. They were the distinctives that led to the church in Thessalonica being born and individuals being brought into the faith, and it should also be true of us. And so now we come back to this rich description of how Paul knew that this church and the people in this church were an authentic expression of the ecclesia, these called out ones. So they'd heard the good news, the text says. Well, so what? All kinds of people hear the good news. Hearing the good news doesn't always result in the kind of response that we would hope for. It doesn't result in transformation. They had heard, sometimes people hear, but there's no effect whatsoever. But this was not true in the church of Thessalonica. They heard and received the message. It had its intended 
result. In verse 6, it says this, You became imitators of us and the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. See, the power of the gospel always results in transformation when it is welcomed, when it is embraced. We see this repeatedly in this passage. You welcomed the message. This is always where it starts. If you're here this morning and you're a Christ follower, it's because you welcomed the message. You heard it and you embraced it. And that's what began that process of transformation for you. In Thessalonica, their response to the proclamation of the gospel came in the context of great suffering. You can go read about that if you like later in Acts 17. But this was not an easy place to make a decision to follow Christ. But even in that context, the reality of what God had done in their lives allowed them to face that suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. So they have welcomed the message, transformation has occurred, and it has resulted in them living out joy even in the midst of hardship and trials. It's incredible. This fruit of the Spirit is being produced in their life. Later, when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he reminds them of the joy and the sacrifice of the church at Thessalonica. We read that in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy, here he mentions it again, they're experiencing all this grinding pressure, and yet there's joy. But he goes on to say something else that I think is really powerful. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. What? It welled up in rich generosity. Their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. One of the fruits was joy. We go, amen. Another one of the fruits was they were generous. They were sharing, they were giving, they were funding, they were engaged in something that went beyond them. Friends, that's an evidence of transformation. When all of a sudden it's not about me all the time, God's at work, right? Because the reality is most of our life it's me, 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 right? The world revolves around me. It's me and my universe. When God breaks in, we see this kind of change happening. All of this was evident to Paul and the team. So here we have the Apostle Paul giving this young church a pat on the back. Many of the members of this church would have been Christ followers for a very short period of time and in a very difficult circumstance. But they heard the gospel and received it and it transformed their lives. Now, I love what happens in verse 3. I've kind of saved that one because it's my kind of favorite little spot in this part of the text. Listen to what it says in verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's an interesting verse. It's full. We could spend all morning talking about this verse because what he's saying is they met Jesus. Transformation occurred. And you know what took place after that? Work. But not just any work. 
work produced by faith. They believed that God was going to take their effort and do something with it. And it was motivated. Their labor was prompted by love. This other first kind of mentality. And their endurance inspired by hope. Right? Endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to press on, not because it's easy, not because necessarily we see all the fruit we were hoping for, but we're going to press on because we have hope that what Jesus has called us to, he will actually bring about. Right? Now, it's interesting. Dawned on me. Huh. Faith, hope, love. Where have I heard that before? Oh, 1 Corinthians 13, right? At the end, verse 13, it's talking about all this stuff and how, you know, at the end of the day, it has to be rooted in the right things or it doesn't end up being of that much value. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. But the three of them together are very powerful. And it's interesting to me that when Paul thinks about the church at Thessalonica, he thinks about those three things. Right? It's unbelievable. They had faith, That's what fueled their work. Their labor was prompted by love and their endurance was inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's tremendous. And so we see here why he is so confident in the reality that these people are in fact part of those that have been called out. He doesn't stop here though. He goes on to describe the amazing outworking of their transformation. See, having heard and received the message of grace, they went on to proclaim it in powerful ways that actually rocked their world. Now, when we think about the New Testament church, when we think about the expansion of the gospel, and we mention the word Paul, we think, well, yeah, Paul did all that, right? And he had his missionary journeys, and he traveled all over the world, and he preached to everybody, and that's, there's truth to that. But the thing that we might miss in the midst of all of that, it was not just Paul. It was also the kingdom was expanding through the influences of the churches that Paul had planted. There was this profound compounding effect as he planted churches that lived out their faith and saw increased multiplication themselves. It was wonderful. Verse 7, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. These new believers who had been imitating Paul and Jesus now become the ones being imitated. That's interesting, isn't it? Right? Paul comes, they receive the gospel, transformation occurs, they begin living out their faith, and people say, man, I want to be like them. That's a compliment, isn't it? That's pretty fantastic that that's the way it worked out. The followers now have a following. That's impact. That's influence. It's it's the only time in the New Testament that Paul singles out a church as a model. Wow. So he's just referenced this in his comments to the church in Corinth. And he goes on in verse 8 to say this. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith is in God, has become known everywhere. That's incredible, isn't it, really? This church 
in this Gentile part of the world. Here's the gospel, get transformed. And now all of a sudden, Paul's description of them. This is not their description of themselves. This is Paul's description of them. Your faith has become known everywhere. Wow. This is incredible. The Lord's message being proclaimed everywhere. Now, they were in an interesting place. Humor me for a second. I like maps. So, geography. Thessalonica is in a very interesting spot because it is on the Via Ignatia. Now, you're going, okay, the Via Ignatia. Well, the Via Ignatia ran from what is now Istanbul all the way to the Aegean Sea. It was a road, a paved road, that was one of the major methods of transportation and, co and commerce for the entire region. And then that road, the Via Ignatia, you hopped on a boat and went across to the Via Appia, and where did that one take you to? Rome. So Thessalonica was a very strategic spot because people were coming through there all the time and they were being impacted by the gospel and they were moving on. Ooh, that sounds strategic to me, doesn't it? It was also this tremendous port in a gulf. So there was all kinds of travel taking place where people were coming into port, buying, selling, moving on. It was a hub. So it's interesting to me that when Paul says this notion that your faith in God has become known everywhere, I think he literally meant that. Because people have been coming from all over. They've been on the road. They've been coming by boat. And they've been hearing and seeing the transformation. And that's been impacting their lives. And they've been taking that with them. See, the Thessalonican church was a very strategic place. And I think sometimes what we need to do is we need to stop and remember that where God has placed us is a very strategic place. Where God has placed you is a very strategic place. God has plans. He has all kinds of things that he wants to accomplish through you as a church. And his desire for your church and my church is the same as it was for the church in Thessalonica. He wants people everywhere to know about our faith and to be impacted by it. Now, for most of us in our churches, that's a pretty big vision, right? Everywhere, right? I'm having enough trouble just kind of getting stuff sorted in my neighborhood. Okay, well, I get that. And there is a challenge to that, but the reality is he wants us to dream bigger. He wants to see beyond that. Your church, Fairview, is a strategic church that God has planted in a unique spot in order for it to accomplish great things right. and to have an impact on people, not only here, but all over the place. And he wants it to be said of you and my church, just like it was of the Thessalonian church. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. There's something to aspire to, isn't it? There's something for us to say, oh God, do that in us. So, it goes on. The end of verse 8 and verse 9, therefore we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. We don't need to brag about you because everybody's talking about you. 
That's pretty cool, isn't it? Instead of us telling others about you, they are telling us about you. Right? You know what that's like, right? If you're a parent, you know, you like to brag on your kids, but isn't it much better when somebody else brags to you about your kids? Right? Oh, your son, he's awesome. You're going, really? Oh, no, you don't say that out loud. But inside your head, you're going, huh. Okay, we're going to have to talk about that. But So that's what's happening here. Paul would be happy to brag and has been a little bit about the Thessalonian church. But yet, what's happening? He's having all kinds of people talk to him about them. Going, man, that church you got there in Thessalonica, that's stunning, man. We're hearing about their faith everywhere. There's life change. It's incredible. Okay. See, that's when we start to see the church in action in a powerful way. When it goes beyond us and begins to impact not only the world around us in close proximity, but even beyond. Right? So, Paul describes here what's being said of them. And it's really, this is the cool part. What is it that they're bragging about, these people? Because I think that's a big deal, right? You know, these days, like, oh, I love their building. Oh, man, you wouldn't believe their band. You know, they got the coolest music, blah, 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 right? I'm like, no, no, no. What are they bragging about the Thessalonian church? Listen to it. It begins at the end of verse 9 and into 10. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's what they're bragging on you about. That you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And that you wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. This is incredible. What is it that they're bragging about the Thessalonian church? Their transformation, their life change, their conversion. That's the thing that's so striking everybody. It's wonderful when you think about it. We have this powerful description of conversion and transformation. It's observable. It's catching people's attention. Turned from, to God from idols. Now, okay, we go, whatever, right? Listen to what John Stott says about this. He describes the dramatic nature of this turn. This is what he says. It would be difficult to exaggerate how radical is the change of allegiance which is implied by the turn from idols to the living and true God. This was a world that was full of idols. But he goes on to say this, for idols are dead, God is living. Idols are false, God is true. Idols are many, God is one. Idols are visible and tangible, God is invisible and intangible. Beyond the reach of sight and touch. Idols are creatures, the work of human hands. God is the creator of the universe and of all mankind. There's this huge transformation. And the setting here is powerful. Because this turning to God from idols is taking place in the physical context that Mount Olympus, the home of the gods, is clearly visible only 50 miles to the southwest. They live in a place where idolatry is palpable. You can never get away from it because every time you lift your head, you see that mountain and it reminds you that that's the home of the gods. 
And yet these people have turned from idols to follow the living God. And that is what people are talking about. Wow. So they turned from idols. But they didn't just turn from idols. The text goes on to say they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. See, this is interesting because so much today in our kind of brand of Christianity, we've talked about and thought about Christianity in terms of making sure we believe the right things, we can say the right things, that we're seen as being orthodox. That's good. That's extremely important, but it's not enough. Because what we see here is that they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Their orthodoxy was absolutely sound, but that orthodoxy drove them to action. It drove them to action. That is what the church needs to be. They didn't just believe. They didn't just give intellectual assent to. They served. They were engaged. They were rolling up their sleeves. This caught people's attention. Their faith resulted in a transformation that was active. Was active. Hence we go back to the reality of verse 3. Your work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love. Your endurance inspired by hope. Friends, the reality is it can never be just one or the other. It's not just about believing the right things, and it's not just about doing things. It's both. It's doing things out of, driven by, the reality of what Christ has done in us and the belief we have in him as our risen Savior. But those two things need to be connected. They have to be connected. And we see that at work in the life of this dear church. But they did something else. It was talked about already this morning. This idea of waiting for his son from heaven. I don't actually know what that looked like for them. But my suspicion is that there was this sense of longing and a sense of anticipation. Right? The people in Thessalonica who had come to Christ, understood that this, this world they lived in, uh, it's not it. It's not all there is. There's more coming. We're waiting for the return of our Lord and Savior. It's interesting to me that Paul references this idea in every chapter of First and Second Thessalonians. This idea of waiting. Ultimately waiting for Jesus, I want to say this, it's the only sane response, right? If this is it, we're hooped, right? But we know it isn't it, that we're waiting for Christ. And as we wait, we acknowledge that our work will never accomplish what needs to be achieved fully. We just live in that tension. Our lives will never become all that we were created to be. Pain and sorrow and death will not be completely eliminated. Human suffering will not be put to a stop. 
even as we walk with Jesus, everything, including creation, is groaning. Right? Waiting for the return of Jesus. So we believe, we work, we serve, but we also wait. Because only at his return will all things be made right. So I'm getting a little older. I know that's not readily visible to you, but I'm getting a little bit older. And so the guys I hang with, you know what one of our normal topics is now? We're always talking about stuff that's busted, right? You know, and our favorite line for me and some of my friends, because we still try and do stuff that's probably about two decades below our current status. Yeah, yeah, you, you can laugh about that. You know, there's nothing, well, no, I'm not even going to go there. So, but the reality is we say all the time, man, going old is not for the faint of heart. Right? But I'm waiting. I'm waiting, because that's not the end of the story. Right? It's not the end of the story. We work, we serve, we wait. And only at his return will all things be made right. Now, some of you are movie people. I'm kind of a movie person. My youngest son, he just shakes his head at me because he's a, like a real movie. He's into movies. My, my one grandson has the chronological order of all the Marvel movies memorized and can tell me what's going on in any of them. How many of you are into that? See, there's some of you, right? I'm seeing some of you, you're not putting your hand up, but you're going, oh, yeah, right? You know, I haven't got a clue. I went over to their place one time. They live in another city, and he wanted to sit down and watch a movie, and he, and he said, have you seen this movie? I said, I don't know. Well, he, he, I was hopeless in his mind, so he had to educate me. But one of the fun things about movies sometimes, and you may be into movies like this, sometimes movies have optional endings, Right? So you can watch a movie, and then you can go back, and you can watch it with a different ending. So you can get this different twist on how the whole thing turns out. So I don't know if, I don't know if we've ever watched one of those. Again, I'm not the biggest movie guy. So, but what I want to say to you about this whole idea of optional endings and coming up with something that we like better or is more you know, exciting or whatever, um, when Paul is talking here to the church at Thessalonica, this is not an optional ending in the movie of what a church should function like. This is not pick ending A or pick ending B or pick ending C. This is a biblically defined distinctive of a group of people who are truly called out, who are the ecclesia. This is what a church looks like when it's actually filled with transformed people who are taking Jesus seriously. It's a picture for you and I. There was a book written a few years ago, Unchristian, by David Kinneman. And he highlighted a very troubling statistic from a big, big study of those between, born between 1965 and, and 2002. So of the non-Christians that were surveyed, 84% said they personally know at least one committed Christian. Awesome. Here's the hammer. Yet just 15% thought the lifestyles of those Christ followers were significantly different from the norm. That's a problem. 
right? 85% of them knew somebody that they would have, yeah, I think that's a Christ follower. But of those Christ followers, only 15% lived a life that showed any distinctiveness to it at all. This is a big challenge. See, it wasn't like that in Thessalonica. It shouldn't be like that with us either. What we have read today should be true of every church, everywhere, all the time. And as we reflect on this portrait of an amazing church, I believe there's an application for every one of us. That none of us are beyond what he is trying to say by his spirit today. See, the Thessalonians, think about it, right? They're just living out their lives, and then they hear the gospel. And it changes everything. They welcomed it. They turned to God from their idols to serve the living, true God. They became imitators of those who were guiding them, and more importantly, of Jesus. They, you may be here today, and God is speaking to you just like he was speaking to them. Maybe you don't know Jesus this morning. Will you welcome his message of love and forgiveness? Will you embrace the living Christ and allow him to transform your life? See, you have idols in your life. Just like they did. Those dead, man-made things that you're putting your hope in. A hope that will never be fully realized. I don't know what they are for you. It's a relationship, it's success, it's power, it's something that has now become an addiction. Will you turn from that idol to serve the living and true God? Will you follow Jesus, the Son of God, raised from the dead, the one who has come to rescue you, as the text says, from the coming wrath? incredible. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, today can be your morning. Today can be the time when everything changes for you and the story of what happened to each of those individuals in that Thessalonian church can be yours. Right? I'd like us to just bow our heads for a minute. I am not going to freak you out. I'm not going to make you do anything. But I am going to lead you in a prayer. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, and yet the Holy Spirit has been saying to you clearly, you know what? You need to come to me. You've got to stop following those idols. You need to come to me. I'm God. Come to me. Just pray this prayer along with me. Oh, Jesus. Whew. I have been living life my own way, on my own terms. I got a whole shelf of idols. And I realized this morning that not only are they never going to produce what I need, but that I need to come to you, the living God. So, Father, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry for living life my own way. I confess that I need you. I want to turn from living life my way and follow you. And so I invite you into my life as Savior right now. I surrender my life to you. Be my Lord. 
And oh God, thank you that even as this picture has been painted for us this morning, that I can now experience this amazing transformation just like they did so many years ago. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior. Amen. Now, friend, if you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family. Hey, it's fantastic. And tell somebody, tell somebody what you've done. Share. Come and talk to the prayer team. Do whatever is necessary, but begin to take the steps that will allow you to really follow after Jesus. Now, for those of you that are already Christ followers, for us, as we think of the amazing description of this New Testament church, I hope it creates a longing in us for more. I hope it creates a longing in us. See, I long for your church, for my church, to continue to grow as a model. It's actually a staggering thought, isn't it? A model in how we love God and love people, in how we put Jesus first in everything, in how we look beyond ourselves to the interests of others, those near to us and those far from us where we are known as those who serve the living and true God and those who are waiting for Jesus' return. We're known for our work produced by faith. We're known for our labor prompted by love. And our endurance is inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. My longing for your church, for my church, is that we will be a church where the Lord's message rings out clearly, relentlessly, regardless of the cost, where there is nothing more important to us than making Jesus famous. Nothing more important to us than making Jesus famous, where our faith is known everywhere. There's something to aspire to, Fairview Church, where our faith is known everywhere, in good times and in tough times, with no regard for the consequences. Do you long for these things too? Here's the challenge for you if you follow Christ today. This longing, this beautiful picture of the church is only going to be realized as it takes shape in each of us. Each of us. This is not something that your pastor can do for you. This is not something that your elders can do for you. This is not something that your worship team can do for you. For this church to become all that God wants it to be, it requires all of us being transformed into the people he wants us to be. And then collectively, the ecclesia, the called out ones, manifest his presence and his power and his grace in ways that go beyond anything that we could ever imagine. We have to wake up every day and say to God, make these things true of me today. Today. Will you join me in that? Let's pray. Father, this is an incredible picture of the church. Oh, Spirit of the living God, move afresh in us. Give us 
a healthy dissatisfaction with the status quo. Help us to not only appreciate, but hunger for more of you. A greater revelation of you. More power. More transformation. And Lord, it's not so that we would become famous. It's so you will be famous. You will be famous. So Lord, I pray that for my dear brothers and sisters here. That increasingly, they will become all that we have talked about this morning. And I pray for them as individuals that they will pursue that with all their hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.